Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Crazy Money. Yes, we've had a little bit of a hiatus. Took the past eight weeks or so off to recharge the batteries and kind of take a break from the very labor-intensive process of recording 40 podcasts per year. And so uh, we're going to try to get back on this horse pretty quickly. I've got three essays I'm going to read to you as uh, this week's episode, and they're all from my Substack, Money and the Meaning of Life, and they're all about things that have upset me. They're all about things that have made me uncomfortable, and I'll talk about those in a second, but I want to share more insights as to the personal reasons why we've had an eight-week hiatus. I honestly plan to come back several weeks ago, and I was planning on rebranding Crazy Money. I don't think the name has ever really captured what this show is about. And I'm going to talk about that in another episode with Mike Carano that we're going to record when I'm with him in San Francisco this week. But there's more personal reasons why I haven't been able to get back to the podcast. And by the way, I'll be at Cobb's Comedy Club this Thursday, February 22nd. You should uh, come out and see me. And next week, February 28th at Zanies in Nashville. But the personal reasons why I have not had the time to do the podcast. Are you listening? Are you listening? So Stacy and I have been up to a project for the past six months. And no, it's not getting divorced. I wouldn't call it a project if it happened. And I hope it never happens. We've been up to a personal project that is not totally resolved, but I want to share it with you because it's been kind of crazy. So last September, we're in New York City for Fashion Week. Stacy has a, an accessories brand called Sidecar. It is a collection of premium leather straps with gold-plated clips to help you carry your hat while you travel and some very cool custom clutches, which men might know as small purses or handbags that are very fashionable and, and she's created very cool products. I'm doing a terrible job describing them and I'll be told as such when she hears this. But we were in Fashion Week because she had gotten herself into Fashion Week. She was uh, a part of some fashion shows up there and the whole thing was very cool. And we were in New York with the kids, we were walking around and we were feeling full of nostalgia as we met there 19 years ago last fall when we were younger and employed and I had more hair, not, not a lot of hair, but more, more, definitely more. And we were walking around New York City and we're just feeling all the good things you feel in the city, especially in the fall. And we both came to the conclusion that we thought it would be super cool to be back in New York City. That the city where we met, the city where we both went to continue our careers when we were two decades younger is a place that we'd still like to experience as older people. And we thought, wouldn't it be an amazing experience for our children if they could go to high school in New York City. And you should have seen Team Ollinger kick into action when we both admitted we were thinking this thing separately. In the subsequent months, Stacy and I started a process that most, most couples probably spend year or years on, and that is the quest to get our kids into private school in New York City. I'm almost glad that we didn't have any more time to do this because it's one of those things that the amount of energy and neuroses and uh, what, what do you call it when you rumination on this process, the stress, the overthinking we would have put into it had we had more time to prepare for it. We probably would have hired an admissions consultant. We would have talked about it for a year and it would have been like this half rumor that we were going to do it. 
But instead, we just went into action gear. And Stacy and I started calling everybody we knew who had high school age kids in New York City and trying to learn as much as we could about the different private schools there, uh, what their values were, try to, you know, like what their reputations were, what they were good at, what they weren't as good at, and how would that fit for our two unique children who have very different learning styles, very different personalities, and where would the best fit be? We took two trips, two separate trips up to New York City to go and visit high school campuses. It was really cool because I'd never been through high schools in New York City. Yeah, I lived there when I was much younger, but that would have been weird if I'd have gone into high schools before I had any kids. But we saw these campuses of these incredible schools, beautiful schools like Sacred Heart and Marymount and Columbia Prep and Hewitt and Dwight and Grace Church School and Trevor, and I'm probably forgetting, uh, Dwight Inglewood in New Jersey. We had these incredible visits to these campuses and we saw, oh, this is how people do high school in New York City. The campuses aren't the kinds of campuses we have here in Atlanta without big parking lots and separate buildings that you walk across a big field to get to. No, because of space constraints in New York City, they have this very condensed version of high school. And so we got to see all these different campuses and schools we had heard about over the years but didn't know anything about. And we aggregated our opinions and we talked about where we felt at home and where the admissions people and the faculty and the and the administrative people had had welcomed us, and everyone was wonderful. I have to say that whatever you've heard about New York City private schools, the people were kind and generous and welcoming, and we had really good experiences. Now, that's before we go through the admissions process and fill out all the applications and all that stuff, and before we have received our final decisions for our children. But this process has been going on, and we're still waiting to hear back on whether the kids have gotten to school or not. We don't have final decisions. We have some partial data that I'm not going to share with you yet because I don't want to show that card yet. We do not have total data. We do not have a green light on this process yet. It is today's February 19th. We're waiting to hear this week whether or not we're going to have the green light to go to New York. And yes, that means we're selling our house in Atlanta probably selling our house in North Carolina and packing everything up and condensing from like 8,000 square feet for one house down to 2,000 or whatever we can afford in New York City. And I got to tell you, I'm pretty excited about the prospect. I will be 100% fine if it comes down that we're not going to go. The process of preparing our home in Atlanta to sell has only made me love it more, especially the process of getting rid of hundreds of pounds of crap that we have accumulated over the last 12 years, 13 years, I guess. We've repainted, we've recarpeted, we've fixed every broken light bulb indoors and out. We've replaced the heaters on the pool. We've done all this work and the house just feels as good as it's felt in years because nothing's broken right now. And the whole process makes me just more grateful for the great situation we have here in Atlanta. We do think it'd be an incredible adventure to live in New York City for a while. Uh, and for the kids to go to school there. But by no means does that mean we haven't had a great time here in Atlanta or that we don't have wonderful friends with whom we want to continue our relationship wherever we live. So we're going to find out in the next few days whether or not we're going. But the point of bringing all this up was to say that this process of applying to schools, this process of preparing our house for sale has been time-consuming on a level I never would have anticipated. Or let me put it this way, it's totally anticipatable. I just 
didn't really appreciate how much I didn't really appreciate how much of my discretionary time would go into these processes, processes as they say in England. And it's been it's been highly rewarding, but also time consuming. And I'm very excited to be getting back to producing the podcast uh, with this episode of these essays that I have written over the past couple of months. So let's get into them, shall we? As I said, these essays all have their root and me being frustrated, and me being pissed off or perturbed by something in the world. The first one is what happened when I got a gift from a place where we spend more money than I thought we were spending. Here we go. Adventures in Affluence, Dry Cleaning. How a nice gesture unsurfaced my latent conflict. I just made my last dry cleaning run of 2023, It was quite a haul to carry. So much weight pulled on the wire hangers that I felt pain in my wrist. In my other hand, I clutched a gift from the owner of the business. As I walked into the house, Daisy thanked me for picking up the clothes and said, What else do you have there? Oh, this is the bottle of champagne the dry cleaner gave us as a holiday present. That is so nice, she cheered. It's not nice, I replied. The guy's obviously screwing us over. Having dealt with my chronic grumpiness for 19 years, my wife shook her head and looked at me with her, for a relatively nice guy, you can be such an a-hole expression. I've seen it before. Why are you like this? She said. It's a nice gesture. Of course, I regretted my words immediately. All I meant was that whenever someone buys you champagne, they are either trying to have sex with you or they've already made love to your wallet, whether or not you've actually noticed. In the case of dry cleaner guy, I'm almost certain it was the latter, and thus was I holding 750 milliliters of Mum Napa Brut Prestige NV. That stands for non-vintage. Stacy was right. The sparkly wine was a sincere and unnecessary token of gratitude. But in a weird way, his holiday kindness triggered me, making me wonder, how did I get to a place where my annual dry cleaning bill merits a bottle of medium low-end bubbles? Growing up, there was no dry cleaning in the Ollinger house. My father, a nuclear engineer, wore a jacket and tie to work, a post-Vietnam permapress office casual vibe. My mother was the homemaker, which meant that, in addition to her day job at the church, she cooked dinner for eight people, prepped my dad's work outfit, I know, I know, the patriarchy, and washed the kids' clothes. At some point during my freshman year, mom, to her credit, resigned this last duty, leaving me with a choice of whether or not I wanted to iron my school uniform. Outsourcing this task was never discussed. I didn't have to do it, as plenty of my classmates walked the halls of St. Pius X Catholic High School in wrinkly button-downs, but I was vain and chose to press my shirts, most of which were a 50-50 poly-cotton blend, so it wasn't terribly difficult. I went to college with a distinctly more affluent crowd, but most kids attended class in tees or golf shirts. However, there was this one guy in particular who stood out. Along with his creased duckhead khakis and shiny Weegians, this six-foot-four-inch hair-gelled athlete wore heavily starched, 100% cotton, pinpoint Brooks Brothers dress shirts that required professional care every single day. I remember seeing him transport his weekly dry-cleaning bounty, a cape of cellophane billowing over his shoulder as he strode from his red BMW to the dorm like the bad guy from every 80s teen movie. To his credit, he was unapologetically well put together, even if, at 19, he dressed like the 56-year-old lawyer he would someday become. It eventually occurred to me that he was spending more to clean his clothes than I earned every month in my work-study job. I wasn't jealous so much as curious, a wide-eyed witness to the habits of the wealthy. So that's something you can spend money on. Who knew? 
In my first year out of college, I earned a $25,000 salary at an office job that required literal white collars. So I bought the best shirts TJ Maxx had to offer and splurged 89 cents per day to get them cleaned. This was a huge luxury. But as with so many other things, as you get older and make more money, luxuries eventually become thoughtless needs. And this one has expanded to the point where, today, we're laundering things like cashmere throw blankets and linen napkins, items I never considered owning, let alone paying to clean. We arrived at this unconscious habit accidentally. I don't recall even checking my dry cleaning receipts in the past decade, and that 89 cents per shirt is now probably $4 or way more. I have no idea because I never gave it any thought. That is, until dude hit me with a bottle of bubbly and uncovered my latent dry cleaning trauma, which I projected onto him. Was it guilt or shame? Do I feel unworthy? Have I lost touch with who I used to be? Or am I worried that my parents would consider me wasteful? Am I now the villain from the 80s movie, albeit balder and heavier? I don't know, but I just checked my 2023 American Express account. This year's dry cleaning expenditures totaled $1,773.86. Damn, that's a lot. Next year, I expect Dom Perignon. The end. Yeah, so... It's weird when you sort of stop and think about something that you didn't have growing up and you now take for granted. And I remember as a kid, and yeah, I know I talk about coming from one of six kids from middle-class family. I don't feel like a victim. I don't try to position myself like that. I'm very grateful for the wonderful blessings of growing up in a two-parent household, two good parents who were committed to each other and their kids who were stable and pretty solid through their entire lives. And I'm still tight with my family. I'm pretty good friends with all my brothers and sisters. All that's good. I'm just saying there's certain things, certain luxuries that we didn't have that I, I didn't even know to want. There were certain ones that I did want and I knew I wanted them like an Atari 2600 and HBO definitely wanted those things. We didn't have cable till I was in college and I definitely wanted cable television growing up, but I didn't know, I didn't even know dry cleaning existed. It wasn't like we were doing wash and fold in Atlanta. You know, there wasn't, you didn't drop your laundry off. It was just, was, we didn't know. I remember one time I couldn't find any hangers, any wire hangers in our house. It never occurred to me. Where do wire hangers come from? You got to go to the store to buy them. I don't know where you bought them in 1984. Kmart target. What was, uh, it was called Zayers. Z-A-Y-R-E was Target before it was Target. I guess that's where you bought hangers. I don't know. But today, we've got to go to the dry cleaners and drop off used hangers. I guess we just throw them away, but I get really uptight about throwing away stuff that's semi-recyclable. I take a box full of hangers every three or four months back to the dry cleaner. And I know when they see me walking up, they're like, we're just going to throw these away. We hope you feel better about this because... We're not going to use them, but if it makes you feel better and you'll keep coming here because we pretend to recycle your hangers, then we'll pretend. We'll play a little game. You want to play a game? We'll play a game. If your business is worth a $28.99 bottle of champagne, well, then it's certainly worth me pretending that I'm going to recycle these hangers because you've got some guilt-saturated soul that you've got to deal with on a daily basis, and so they do that. Where do hangers come from? But now they come from the dry cleaner. We get our clothes. Every time we wear them, I get my shirts back on a hanger and I pull it off the hanger and I wear the shirt and I throw the shirt in the hamper and the hanger's still sitting there. So we have hanger surpluses. Not something we had as a kid. That's all I'm saying. I'm happy that I have the opportunity to get my clothes dry clean. I can't imagine being in a 
you know, nine to five office job or eight to 10 o'clock at night office job where you have to wear a professionally clean shirt every day and ties that I just spill soup on or jackets. I do have some nice jackets and like, I think I have one suit that fits. I've been to two funerals in the last six months and both times I didn't have a suit that fit because the last suit I bought didn't fit me since before pandemic. It like fit me going into pandemic, but I don't want to say what happened, but well, you can imagine that things aren't going the proper direction with my weight. And they're actually going the very natural direction. So I got a new suit recently. So I have like one suit. I've got a couple of jackets that fit, but I wear them very rarely. So the dry cleaning bill would be massive if I actually had, uh, if I had to wear real clothes. If I could choose a superpower after x-ray vision and the ability to fly, I would choose the ability to implant in other people a faith that they can achieve and enjoy financial prosperity. Lacking this trust in economic self-determination, a person will never reach his or her full potential. A prime example of the attitudes that limit financial success and fulfillment can be seen in Born on Third Base, the recent Max, formerly known as HBO, comedy special by the transcendently talented Gary Goleman. New York Times comedy critic Jason Zinneman called it a meticulously funny hour that digs into the gap between the haves and the have-nots. That it is, but as someone who has been both a have and a have-not, and who has performed thousands of stand-up comedy shows across the country, I feel strong, conflicting emotions about Gary's message. I grew up one of six children to parents who were scarred by the Depression and never made a lot of money. We had all we needed, but budgetary stress lingered like an irritating, omnipresent guest. I channeled that angst toward building a great corporate career and found one that even allowed me to retire early. Gary Goleman was born a have-not and eventually became one of the most gifted comedians on the planet. A dedicated craftsman, he weaves jokes, observations, and wordplay into intricate tapestries of humor. His bits about non-obvious topics, grapes versus grapefruit, the origin of the 50-state abbreviations, and Hitler's, quote, shenanigans, have earned him a spot in the pantheon of modern cerebral comedy. Born on third base is a worthy addition to his body of work. Always vulnerable about his insecurities and struggles with mental health, Gary reflects on his impoverished youth and the indignity of free school lunch, in parentheses, and breakfast, exclamation point. He calls bullshit on the welfare dependency trope and makes a compelling argument that no one understands the zero-sum realities of home economics like poor kids. But he also demonstrates a crippling poverty mindset and a crushing envy of those who have more than he does. He's discussed this issue before. In his 2023 memoir, Misfit, Gary writes at length about his grudge against wealthy people, quoting the great Gatsby, quote, I have never been able to forgive the rich for being rich, and it's colored my entire life and work. He goes on to explain how much he hates elitist sports like skiing and how he sees the resulting torn ACLs and broken limbs as, quote, cosmic judgment for their opulent FU to the working class. One sees this rancor coloring his work in the new special when he analyzes, quote, cartoonish income inequality by contrasting his financial situation with that of Jerry Seinfeld. In this Jerry versus Gary bit, he suggests with numerical precision that since the two men are in the same business, there could be no justifiable reason that Jerry is a billionaire while Gary's net worth hovers around $89,000, or so he says. 
He wonders how it could possibly be fair that Jerry owns a building to house his Porsche collection when Gary and his wife can't afford a four-slice toaster. As funny as this juxtaposition is, the logical and perhaps factual errors run deep. First, Jerry's astronomical worth came not from joke-telling, but from television production. If Gary wishes to close the gap between Jerry and himself, all he has to do is go back in time and co-create a sitcom so popular that 76 million people watch the finale. He could then sit back for 25 years and watch his net worth soar, propelled by reruns, residuals, and compound interest. But very few comedians have created such beloved touchstones of pop culture. Ray Romano probably came closest by starring in Everybody Loves Raymond and earning himself hundreds of millions, which is a lot, but still only a fraction of Jerry's balance sheet. Ray doesn't seem bothered by this disparity, but Gary really takes it personally. Why? Has Jerry's success deprived Gary of a single dollar? Of course not. In fact, one could argue that the former paved the way for the latter by proving the market for nuanced observational comedy and helping to keep open the clubs where Gary eventually learned his craft. Speaking of that craft, one explanation of the two comics' divergent monetary outcomes lies with their respective products. In the new special, Gary alleges that he is a better comedian than Jerry. That may or may not be true, but guess what? It doesn't matter. While brilliance and economic success are likely correlated, massive financial windfalls in entertainment result only from mass appeal. And while Gary ostensibly speaks on behalf of the common man, he requires the crowd to meet him at intellectual heights well above the mainstream, quote, brutes, as he acknowledges in Misfit. His jokes are too clever, dare I say precious, yes I dare, for the mass audience. For better or worse, that's where the money is. There are a million examples of this in every art form. Essayist George Saunders might be the most talented writer alive, but he'll never earn as much money as the person who composes the next Avengers script. Taylor Swift may not be the best guitarist in the world, but she is the most popular, and that's why she, like the guy who played Jerry on Seinfeld, is a billionaire. On the surface, Gary is calling out inequality, but by creating this us-versus-them duality, he's just perpetuating the paralyzing attitudes that will keep him and millions who share his resentment from achieving their financial potential. Here's another example. Gary contends that growing up poor makes a person more empathetic and offers as proof the way upper-class customers, quote, wag their finger at Chipotle or Subway employees. While I have no doubt many affluent people act entitled in public, whenever I see a viral video of a Burger King brawl or Waffle House fight club that started because the cashier didn't provide extra napkins, the fist-swinging, hair-pulling customers don't appear to be doctors, lawyers, or hedge fund managers. He's right that the treatment of service workers is an issue of class, but only in the sense that class is defined by the way someone, rich or poor, demonstrates courtesy to their fellow human. The most intriguing part about Gary's situation is the fact that he almost certainly earns over a million dollars per year. If, for example, he sells out his upcoming show at Washington, D.C.'s 1,800-seat Warner Theater for a very conservative average of $75 per ticket, his 50% of the gross would total about $68,000. Deduct 25% for agents, managers, and travel, and he would still take home $50,000 for the evening. That buys a lot of toasters. One million annual dollars isn't a billion in net worth, but it places him deep into the top 1% of U.S. earners. And here's where things get complicated. Gary's economic reality is now at odds with his self-image and long-held animus. For a person scarred by childhood deprivation, this cognitive dissonance induces guilt and shame. To atone for the perceived sin of his accomplishment, he projects that transgression onto someone who has even more. 
In the process, he transmits the virus of self-limiting resentment onto a delighted audience that has no idea, or worse, just doesn't care, that they're infected. Gary's comedy has given me a lot of joy over the years, and he has earned all of his artistic and financial success. I wish I could give him the power to enjoy it. Because welfare might not keep people poor, but negative beliefs sure do. The end. All right, I took I took a little bit of grief for this this article. I posted it on Facebook, as I do. Some people said, I think you're taking this bit of Gary's too literally. That, you know, when I say that he can't afford a toaster, he doesn't really mean he can't afford a toaster. I get that. But I do think he's playing the poor man. And I do think he can't get his head around the fact that he's not a poor man anymore. And that I think he can't accept the success that he has earned. And I think this holds him back, not from making money, because clearly he is making money, and that this attitude has not kept him literally poor, that has kept him psychically poor, that he is normalizing the attitude that it's not okay to be successful. And I don't think that's disingenuous in the sense that he's saying something he doesn't believe. I think he, it's disingenuous in the sense that it's just wrong. And he's holding himself back and he's holding other people back by normalizing this, we don't deserve to, to be successful or we shouldn't work toward being even self-sufficient. And I think that's a huge problem in America today. We've got this virus of people who think that hard work isn't cool that capitalism, that success in a capitalist society is proof that somebody is up to something illegal or immoral, or they're cheating somebody else, they're depriving somebody else of their success. And I think that's a bunch of horseshit. I think we've really got to change these attitudes to say, you know what? There are good things that come if you work hard. And yeah, it's not an equal society. And no, everybody doesn't start from third base or second base or even first base. But all of us have the opportunity to move to a base ahead of where you were born. And I'm sorry, but I think if you don't believe that, that's your fault. I think that that is a self-limiting belief that other people whose own power is based on the proliferation of a victimhood narrative in our country, they're doing everything they can to spread beliefs that perpetuate a victim mentality. And they do so for preservation of their own status, for preservation of their own office, for preservation of their own academic positions. They want to scare you into staying a victim so that you continue to vote for people who pretend to be on the sides of victims. I'm on the side of victims by saying, hey, you don't have to be a victim. You can achieve economic autonomy if you want it. This last essay in the trinity of essays that I'm sharing with you today is all about how the Internal Revenue Service offended me. They offended, they hurt my feelings. Here you go. The dreaded H word. Should labors of love be tax-deductible? Epigraph. 
A hobby loss refers to any loss incurred while a taxpayer conducts business that the IRS considers a hobby. The IRS defines a hobby as any activity undertaken for pleasure rather than for profit. From Investopedia. Well, I guess I've let the cat out of the bag about the H word is, but pretend you don't know it yet, okay? Here we go. We need to talk about your podcast. Thus read the email from my accountant, Miles, in reference to my 2022 tax return. Whether you hear it from your CPA, lawyer, or lover, we need to talk means that bad news is coming. This was no exception, as the remainder of his note explained. I'm concerned that the significant deductions from podcast-related expenses will trigger an IRS audit due to the hobby loss rule. Yikes! The threat of an IRS audit is nothing to take lightly. I've been audited before, and while I came out squeaky clean, the process required in-depth forensic homework and consumed weeks of my life. It's not an experience I want to repeat. But as scary as a lube-free government probe might be, the word in his note that caught my eye and turned my stomach was not the A word. It was the H word. He was calling my podcast a hobby. And as pathetic as it feels to admit this, it hurt my feelings. Like a lot. The IRS hobby loss rules rightfully exist to prevent rich dudes from, for example, buying a ranch and then using its significant vacation-like expenses to reduce their taxable income. It's a fair policy, but words matter, and according to Wikipedia, hobby is a pejorative term for someone engaged in a, quote, childish pursuit. To the IRS, one side or sole hustle is legitimate only if it generates revenue. If it does not, then that person is a drooling, navel-gazing dilettante dabbling in a masturbatory vanity project. At least, that's how I read it. Interpreted through the lens of generally accepted accounting principles, Miles' counsel was dead on. My tens of thousands of dollars in 2022 podcast expenses were way out of proportion to the associated revenue, which equaled, what was the exact sum? Oh, yes, zero. But evaluated through the lens of my fragile ego, my podcast is most definitely not a hobby. Over the past five years, I have recorded 200 interviews with people like LL Cool J, Judd Apatow, Ryan Holiday, Andrew Yang, and winners of the Nobel Prize, Heisman Trophy, PGA Championship, and Olympic gold medals. I have more than held my own in conversations with best-selling authors, philosophers, CEOs, university presidents, billionaires, and a member of the House of Lords. Third-party metrics indicate that my audience is in the top 0.5 percentile of all podcasts worldwide, and people I have never met seek me out to tell me that my work has made them better human beings. Does that sound like a fucking hobby? Well, according to the IRS, yes, that's precisely what it is, regardless of how deeply their opinion wounds my pride. Speaking of which, my visceral reaction to their bureaucratic diagnosis warranted reflection as to why I was taking this so personally. I think it's because I've invested so much in my podcast, crazy money, both financially and emotionally. Anyone with a smartphone can make a podcast, but the low barriers to entry disguise an ugly truth. Producing a decent show is hard and very expensive. On top of recording equipment and software subscriptions, I spend a few hundred bucks per episode for audio editing, which doesn't seem terrible until you multiply it by 40 episodes per year. And there's no upper limit on how much one could spend on guest bookers, publicists, and social media managers to say nothing of video production without which you'll miss the growing audiences on YouTube and Spotify and non-optional promotional clips for Insta, TikTok, and Snapchat. 
But even if you put together a fantastic product and invest loads in marketing, your chances of breaking through the clutter are meager. On a recent episode of the Pivot Podcast, Scott Galloway shared with co-host Kara Swisher the harsh financial realities of the 3 million show podcast universe, saying, quote, anything outside of the top 300 to 500 podcasts are just marketing or hobbies. Yes, he used that word. Even with the backing of a massive platform like Spotify, A-list celebrities like the Obamas and the Sussexes, say that five times fast, couldn't make the juice worth the squeeze, which helps to explain the recent spate of industry layoffs and why the number of net new podcasts is flat or down. Galloway, who once described indie producers like me as, quote, wannabe Joe Rogans, went on to tell Swisher that podcasting makes no sense for the creator unless he or she is deriving a lot of quote, psychic income. My ears perked up. Here was one of those moments of illumination that come when you listen to brilliant people engaged in the kind of long-form, constraint-free conversations you get only on podcasts. While discussing the potential profit or loss Sirius would incur from its new deal with Smartless, Grumpy Prof G dropped some knowledge that struck home. The reason I persevere, despite the massive time commitment and dogshit economics, is because producing my show makes me feel engaged and useful. I learn a lot. I meet incredible people. I provide value for my small but very real audience of curious listeners who often tell me that my work matters, that I matter. That's why I take it personally. More to the point, crazy money is a big part of what I've done with my life over the past half decade. In addition to being a committed husband, loving father, and pretty good stand-up comic, it's who I am. Lacking a professional title at a recognizable institution, I am Paul Ollinger, comedian and podcaster. Don't you see that, IRS? When I left my job at Facebook, I tried to articulate to a friend my frustrations with the role-playing that is required in the corporate world, saying, I'm just trying to find work that feels like me being me. And I found it. The only downside is that it hasn't paid so great yet. I've been asked, how do you figure out what to do with yourself when you no longer need a paycheck? Here's my answer. Ask yourself, what are you willing to spend several years learning to do with no expectation of financial compensation? Perhaps it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If there are no barriers to entry for a field that pays significant psychic income, then supply will always exceed demand, profits will be non-existent, and even if you're in the top 0.5 percentile of your chosen field, there will be thousands of others between you and the leaders in your category. These market conditions might prevent me and my fellow podcasters from ever reaching that orgasmic intersection of the authentic and the lucrative, though I have managed to reduce my burn rate. In 2023, I scraped my way to mid-five figures in speaking fees and Substack subscriptions. Thank you, kind readers. It's still a money pit, but it's slightly less deep. The good news is that I still love it. And unlike a paycheck, psychic income is not taxable, at least not yet. So don't tell Miles or the IRS that I'm having such a good time. Well, I forgot to mention that there was an asterisk in the comments about Scott Galloway, where he said, Galloway, who once described indie producers like me as wannabe Joe Rogan's asterisk, the corresponding asterisk footnote reads thusly. To be clear, Scott didn't mention me, but his statement came just days after I sent him an email invite to be on my show. I don't know if he ever read my note, and I'm sure he receives dozens of podcast invitations every week, but how many are from bald comedians who wish they were Joe Rogan? I don't know. See, that was kind of funny. This did happen. I've emailed Scott Galloway twice to invite him to be on the show, and he hasn't replied. Like I said, 
He's a busy guy. He's under no moral obligation to come on my show. Doesn't have to. Does the name Crazy Money, as weird as it sounds, does that prevent Scott Galloway from coming on my show? Probably not. Probably because he knows that unless you're in the top three to 500 podcasts in the world, your audience is relatively small. My audience is small, but uh, wildly good looking, terribly successful, and super intelligent. That's you that I'm talking about right there, by the way. For commentary in general on this piece, I did, this is real, like when I heard the word hobby from the IRS, an organization that cares nothing about me, that has no personal subjective opinion about my work, that makes no judgment on the artistic quality of my jokes or my writing. They just say, hey, look, you can't, we are the internal revenue service. We are not the internal meaning service. We're not the internal purpose service. They're not here to judge whether or not something has merit in the world. They're here to judge whether or not it has revenue. It's right there in the title. I should have included this in this piece. This is actually good insight. They're the internal revenue service. Hobbies are hobbies. If you don't make money, it's a hobby. That doesn't mean you're a drooling dilettante, though, necessarily. It just means you don't make money yet. And that's okay. But I was I was hurt. And it made me think, well, what have I done for the last five years of my life? Does it have does it have value? Does it have meaning? And I do think it does. And I've met incredible people. The guests that I've had on the show are world class. And I've stayed in touch with people from all parts of my life that I wouldn't be in touch with because of the podcast. And I've met new people and I've gotten hired to do cool speaking and comedy gigs and lunches and things like that. And that has value. It just doesn't have an enormous amount of revenue. Scott Galloway's point is that, you know, it's just a tough business model and that you've got to find a way to make it work for you. If you think you're going to get rich doing podcasting, good luck. You might as well open a restaurant, try to become a comedian or whatever, because everybody wants to do it. Unless you have a very unique angle, it's going to be tough for you to do it. You're a wannabe Joe Rogan, just like me. All right, folks, there you go. There's your three essays for today that's going to get us going after our beginning of the year hiatus. I'm going to be back next week with a full interview with John O'Leary. John is the author of a book called On Fire, which tells the story of how he was burned over 100% of his body as a child and now is a very well-known author and inspirational speaker on the world. I got to be on his podcast a couple of weeks ago. And as I was prepping for it, I was like, I know who, I've read this guy's book. How have I not reached out to him to have him on the podcast? Why would I do that? And so after we talked, and he's just a really good guy to talk to, his story's incredible. And the trauma that he endured as a child has resulted in a great appreciation for life that he shares with audiences all over the world and through his bestseller, best-selling books. So until then, my friends, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Mike Carano, make me sound smart. <laughs>